Jonathan and you are on the panel. RNZ National, Wallace Chapman uh, with Zoe George and Stephen Franks this afternoon. And as always, it is wonderful to have your company. Now, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has spoken to or spoke to media about the resignation of Kerry Allen as Justice Minister this morning. Shortly after nine o'clock last night, Kerry Allen was involved in a car crash on Evans Bay Parade in Wellington. She was taken into custody and held at the Wellington Central Police Station. She was released at around 1am this morning. She's been charged with careless use of a motor vehicle and refusing to accompany a police officer and summons to appear in court at a later date. Uh, It appears that some of her personal struggles came to a head yesterday and were a contributing factor in this incident. Uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins said, saying that she understood that retaining her ministerial warrant was untenable, especially for a justice minister to be charged with criminal offending. Uh, Recall back in 2021, Kerry Allen was hailed for handling a major tsunami warning and a large evacuation event on the same day, she got a stage 3 cervical cancer diagnosis. With us to discuss all this is Professor of Politics at Massey University, Richard Shaw. Professor Shaw, welcome. How are you? Very well, thank you. And I'm just looking at the reallocation of, of ministerial portfolios, and they include Ginny Anderson will become the Minister of Justice, Karen McElnulty will become the Minister for Regional Development. Um, a significant story today, Richard, uh, and, uh, well, it's a case of here we go again. Fifth Minister Labour's lost this year. Yes, uh, and... I mean, there are various points of entry into this, aren't there? One yeah. is the personal tragedy that is unrolling for Kiri Tapu Allen. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to question that. What people will be questioning increasingly is who's the next person who's going to go. That's 20% more or less of the Prime Minister's Cabinet uh, in the space of, of around about a year. And that has all kinds of consequences. Um, part of those, some of that I think goes to the question of workload. Jenny Anderson picks up, she's already Minister for Police and other things, she picks up a, a, a very significant portfolio, Karen McAnulty. The PM isn't taking anybody new into Cabinet, but it's essentially uh, an unlooked-for and unwanted Cabinet reshuffle. So there are there are questions around the continuity of the work that is done within those portfolios as the ministers to whom they are new get up to speed. Mm three months out from an election. It's, a, it's also a distraction in terms of the, of the political campaign. Uh, every time he, he seems to be able to drag the agenda back to whatever it is that he wants to focus on, the Prime Minister finds that there is another distraction. So there is interference in that particular respect. And, and there's probably a third set of issues as well, as well, which we may want to get to, which have to do with the possible consequences of this for the distribution of voting support for Labour and more generally the parties on the centre-left. But there's no, there's no question that, quite apart from... Ms. Allen's own personal uh, travails, that this is um, probably the last sort of thing that the Prime Minister would have wanted. Yeah, indeed. And we'll come to our panel very, very soon. Just one from me, though, uh, Professor Shaw. Has the election result now been decided? It's just simply a question of by how much. What do you think? Uh, I don't think it is. Well, let me, there's a kind of yes and no answer. This. It is starting to feel like the dog days of this government. They, they, they are looking and feeling tired. They are dropping balls uh, at a time when they should not be doing so. So it's, you, could, you could look at what is occurring now. The fifth minister to go, a couple of them have been in front of the Privileges Committee. 
and you can think this surely is the point at which uh, it starts to slip away from Labour. But but there are probably two things here. One is quite a lot of voters still in New Zealand are, are pretty tribal about their support. So they will back their team come hell or high water. There is an increasing percentage of the vote, though, which floats around between elections. And most people go looking for competence. What they want is a government broadly associated with their values, but above all, one which is competence. And it's the it's the... The question marks that can reasonably be asked around the competence of individual ministers, therefore the government of which those ministers are a part, which is where the danger really lies mm. for the Prime Minister and for the Labour Party. That said, the, 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 the slight sort of counterpoint to that is if, if, if votes or support for the Labour Party slip away to the Greens or to Te Pāti Māori, that's, that's sort of fiscally neutral, as it were, for the centre-left it's the votes, the swing votes that are in the middle, which will be the ones that are at risk. The, the, it's clear from all of the pollings that it still remains a really close election, but Prime Minister Hipkins doesn't need to lose too many of those people to one or other of the centre-right parties let's for jump this in. election to yeah. slip away from him pretty quickly. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Uh, let's jump in now. Um, panel will come back to you, Richard. Uh, Zoe, mm. start with you. Yeah, it was quite shocking waking up this morning to read that news about Kitty Tapu Allen. I think it's a really incredibly sad situation. We have seen, you know, unfortunately her public spiral now for several weeks with allegations of um, treatment of staff and, and her quite public relationship breakup. And so part of my heart goes goes out to her. But yes, I think she was right in stepping down from her role as the Minister for Justice. You just can't, you just can't be in that position. Uh, and I wonder how much this is going to swing the votes um, and what percentage we're going to see and how quickly it's going to turn. Or we, sure. well, we'll, we'll find out when the next round of polls come out, won't we? This is a, oh, kind yeah. of a cumulative thing. The one thing I might just, if I may, well, it's just leaping on there. The, the other side to this to look at is... Um, I mean, there was a case to be made, I think, that the National Party, the combined support for National Act should have cleared out well and truly by now. Uh, the support for Stephen Franks' former party, Act Party, is holding up well. But given the series of incidents that there have been, the fifth minister to go, um, there's a reasonable case to be made for suggesting that the National Party's support should be higher than it is now. If it isn't appreciably higher uh, for the next round of results, then I think there was an interesting question there about whatever it is that is going on within the party. So those those next results, those next polls that will come out will be instrumental in determining which way this Interesting polls. Stephen Franks. I would, I'd say the curious thing for me, Richard, would be um, given that even we're having this discussion about the sadness for a minister, the, the key thing that people should be saying is what's been happening these people who've, who've gone, who've clearly, some of them are liars, some of them are, have been um, sick in the head, some of them have been just accident-prone. But ministers, I, I'm a lawyer, our statutes are full of discretions for ministers. They're making decisions all the time. There are, there are public servants they've got to inspire and, and, and lead. How's it been for them? The, to me, it's just weird that that their focus shouldn't have been on that. But I think it might be what Richard talked about, the tribal polarisation and whether whether democracies can survive when you end up, say, with the US, with the two leading candidates, Trump, who's a desperately nasty person, and Biden, who's must be very close to dementia, um, 
and and the people have got that choice, and it's because they're tolerating politics that's so tribal. It doesn't matter who you put up, they'll stay with their tribe, and that's a that's the biggest worry to me. Yet the group in the middle who shift are too small. Mm-hmm. Richard, uh, I, I have. I think there is something in that, Stephen. I think probably what I would suggest has changed is the content of the tribalism and uh, the polarisation. You know, in our, in our country, essentially since the creation of the competition between the National and Labour parties, we've had the two big parties which have dominated and they've accounted for, you know, 60, 70, 80, generally in the high 80% worth of the combined vote at any general election that started to to drop away if we discount 2020, which was um, a one-off and not likely to be repeated again. So I think that the number of voters who have been shifting around uh, between parties has significantly increased over the last 30 or 40 years. Not always, I think, on the basis of the kind of tribalism that you rightly notice is occurring in the United States of America. Partly that's a function of their old uh, two-party system and an electoral system like the one that we used to have, which encourages two-party voting. We've got a bit of a safety valve here, I think, with MMP, which um, provides people with, uh, with reasonable and effective choices. I think you're absolutely right to raise concerns about the, um, the partisanship in the, in the sense of the evidence within our own country of the emergence of increasing political extremism. Uh, we haven't yet seen that expressed in, in formal representation within the House, but some of the parties that are on the extreme right in particular in New Zealand are starting to register 1%, 2% in the polls. That's still a long way off. What about the, what about the Green Party? Group. The Green Party ran on a campaign to make private property available for the ancestral owners. That, I'd say that's as extreme as anything you could imagine. Oh, I think that, and the Prime Minister ruled that one out. Um, well, no, but you're, you're talking about the parties. They are a very substantial party. With, If people bothered to read their policies, they are extreme. We will, we've got our next guest waiting, Professor Shaw. Um, but uh, for now, thank you very much for your time. That's Professor Richard Shaw, uh, Professor of Politics at Mass University, because our, uh, I think our guest for the next uh, topic is in studio. Now, ACT, they want to introduce what they call a world-class toll roading system. It will use private sector financing and expertise to get new roads built faster and to maintain existing roads quicker and more effectively. Leader David Seymour said New Zealand roads were in a woeful state because building new roads relied on excise tax of funding and government debt for financing. So toll roads, do you support them? The Northern Gateway Toll Road is New Zealand's first fully electronic toll road where motorists don't stop to pay the toll on the road. And do you recall paying at the toll booth going across the Auckland Harbour Bridge. With us as Chief Economist at the New Zealand Initiative, Dr Eric Crampton. He's, well, they've looked closely at how to fund large infrastructural projects. He's kindly come into the studio for us. Uh, Dr Crampton, welcome. Good afternoon. Toll roads, we have them. What's the case for building more of them? Well, they can be great when they have a lot of traffic on them to justify the cost of running the tolling. Running tolling isn't free. It is getting cheaper with tech, but it still isn't free as compared to road user charging. The, the case for them is always then, 
if you can demonstrate a real demand for the road, that road users are happy to pay to use this new flash highway, that can justify bringing the highway into existence. And ACT has here proposed something that gets to one of the deeper underlying problems, where we don't really have currently good mechanisms for winnowing out projects that would have enough demand from road users to really cover their cost over time from ones where they really wouldn't. So they've proposed kind of outsourcing some of that winnowing to PPP partners who'd be looking over projects and deciding whether or not they'd want to be involved in them based on their expectations of the costs and the amount of total revenue they think they could get out of it. It's a beautiful dream. It's an, it could be good, especially as costs come down. It could be good for selecting projects that really would have that kind of road user demand. But there might be a bit of risk where there'd be projects that could be worthwhile that would be backed by road users but still don't quite justify the cost of tolling until we can get tolling costs down. Right, yeah, I'd be interested to hear from uh, our listeners. Um, If you had the chance of driving on a road, say, as good and as beautiful as the Waikato Expressway, would you pay uh, several bucks each way uh, to have the pleasure of driving on a road like this? Uh, Text me, 2101. What about the interest cost of borrowing funds? Well, under a PPP, the the person who's building the road would be fronting the, those capital costs and then recouping it over time by payments by the road user. Another way of running it would be if the government instead were issuing debt specific to a roading project, recouping it through road user charges over time rather than trying to pay it all up front out of the National Land Transport Fund. So that's one of the current problems that they've got these capital constraints in there. You don't have project-specific debt that could help test whether these roading projects would be viable or not. So PPPs are kind of doing double duty in that sense. They're both solving a financing problem and also potentially a delivery problem. You could usefully separate those if the roading operator, currently Waka Kotahi, but there are other ways of doing it, could issue project-specific debt and then just pay it off over time by the road users. What do you reckon, Zoe? I want to know how much this is going to hit me in a pocket, in my pocket. Mm. So if I use the road, what have we figured out the optimal price for a toll? I guess it depends on the cost of running the road. So that's one of the features of Axe Proposal. So they mix, kind of mix together road user charging through a PPP with tolls and congestion charging. So they note the opportunity for charging higher prices on roads that are helping to solve congestion. Another option would be to try and keep those things fairly separate, where you'd run a congestion charge, which has already been generally agreed to for Auckland and Wellington across both national and labor, run a congestion charge that's set so that you sort of you maximize the throughput of traffic. So right now you can spend have a lot of people paying a lot of co- time costs that aren't really recouped and can't be used for any useful purpose. If you flip that over to them paying a money cost instead, people who are able to shift their time of travel would do so, and you've got a fund that you could use for other purposes. I'd like it as a congestion dividend, but people have other ideas on how to run that as well. What do you think, Stephen? I'm just remembering to the first toll roads I saw, which were in Malaysia, and they replaced a road that was literally littered with wrecks, burnt out often, but wrecks of people who'd been killed on the old roads. And they, I remember running into the guy who had actually put that proposal to Mahathir Mohamed, the, the Prime Minister, and went away and got the funding mostly in Germany. And when they started opening their first one, their big problem was all the traffic shifted to the already crowded other roads. So they had to get 
a law passed that blocked the other roads, <laughs> which of course isn't probably what Act has in mind. The gist of it is there is still an issue if your road is very necessary, but it's easily, if the toll is easily avoided at the expense of congestion on an existing road, you still need congestion charging to discourage right. that. Yeah, and that's the kind of comprehensive solution that has been looked at for Auckland and Wellington. Yep. I, now, in terms of um, uh, in terms of uh, Australia, um, Australian Logistics Council CEO Hermione Parsons told the inquiry tollways do not work for the freight industry due to cost, efficiency, and productivity issues. So you could have the same issue here. As they say to pay thirty five bucks for a trip when it's going to maybe save two minutes means there's no value. Well, that'd be one of the things that Axe Proposal is aiming to try and sort out, right? So if nobody would want to come in as the PPP operator because they know that nobody would be willing to pay the tolls that would be necessary to recoup the cost of building the thing, that's one of the ways that you rule out white elephant projects, right? Currently, you'd call them a road of national significance and then not pay much attention to whether it passes muster. What Act has proposed is one way of getting a more commercial discipline into the mix, other ways of doing the similar kind of thing. We've been looking back a bit at, there's a proposal in the late 90s that uh, Stephen might remember under Morris Williamson called uh, Better Transport, Better Roads. It had a pretty neat setup where you split off the operation and running of the roads. You had a, a proposed state-owned enterprise, uh, Highways New Zealand kind of deal that would own the state highways. You would have th- them running the state highways, You'd have user pays, again, into a fund that would pay them for running it. You'd get rid of rates funding of local roads, but have something that looked a little bit more like what the government has proposed for water services, where you'd have amalgamated entities that ran the roads on a regional basis. And all of it would be paying a dividend back to the Crown, because it's a state-owned enterprise. Um, It wasn't a feature in Act's current proposal, but I had seen Simon Court suggest on LinkedIn that the roads should be paying a capital charge back to the government. And that's in some ways more radical than even the Greens would propose. So the Greens would go after this as a, well, it's a bad use of public resources to have anything going on nasty road users with cars. A proposal that would have the roads actually pay their cost of capital back to the public That's wonderful, right? It encourages appropriate use of capital. It encourages discipline in thinking about these things. It's more consistent with having roads that cover their cost. Interesting. Got a lot of response to this, actually. More response than um, uh, most other uh, issues today. Would you consider uh, more toll roads? For now, though, we... That was Dr. Eric Crampton there uh, from the New Zealand Initiative. And by the way, there is an inquiry in uh, to toll roads in Australia right now uh, that uh, could cause traffic distortions. Just want to address one thing before we go. Uh, a, a bit of comment, Stephen Franks, about that phrase that you said, uh, quote unquote, sick in the head. And look, some people are saying, Stephen, it's just a bit unnecessary to say that type of language on the radio. Do you want to address that? <laughs> no, I don't use euphemisms. I'm perfectly happy to call it, call it as it is. It, mental, mental ill health, they've all started as euphemisms. We had but far sick more in the blunt head. ones. It, it's it's just not something that... Well, if you're working for, with someone like that, or if you had a brother like me... It sounds who, pretty offensive, Stephen. Well, it may sound offensive. I've had a lot to do with it. I had a brother who, uh, I won't give you the details, but um, who was sick in the head, and we all felt it very deeply, and we didn't use euphemisms about it. All right. 27 past four of the panel. 
RNZ National. Now, last week, I couldn't help but notice a lot of the FIFA coverage was focused on the low ticket sales. What happened? Uh, the New Zealand football ferns won the first game of the tournament, their first World Cup whenever, straight off the back of the opening ceremony in front of a packed Eden Park. Uh, the New Zealand Herald article, uh, editorial, I'm just looking here, it's addressed to Zoe, uh, and actually looking at the, um, gosh, the figures here, the first four matches in the country attracted crowd attendances of about 120,000 people. Um, are we something, seeing something? Has FIFA fever hit New Zealand? Yes, yes it has, and it's and I, as I said earlier, it's so beautiful. There was a huge spike in ticket sales after the Football Ferns game uh, on Thursday night, and in fact tomorrow's game against Philippines, I jumped on the resale site this afternoon, I think there was like two tickets left. There are still tickets available for the US-Netherlands game in Wellington on Thursday, which will be the game of the tournament here in New Zealand. It's a replay of the 2019 World Cup final. Uh, it's There is so much joy happening uh, around this tournament and it was so beautiful to see the the diversity of people in the crowd. And it was wonderful. And it reminded me of being at the Black Ferns yeah. Rugby World Cup win last year. Isn't yeah, it? it was it was the same vibe. I felt safe walking around by myself. Um there were no issues. I mean other than the cues for the women's lose, but we can talk about that for hours. You know, people were wearing their, their team's colours last night. I mean New Zealand wasn't even playing last night and eighteen thousand turned out at the stadium. We had another 12,000 down in Dunedin, 41,000 for the US on Saturday. People are getting involved and it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. Uh, And of course, New Zealanders always leave everything to the last minute. So of course there was a Uh ticket spike uh, and hopefully more people will get along. (laughs) Stephen, has it made you, you know, you watched that first uh, night with uh, New Zealand. Has it made you want to, you know, buy a ticket, go to a game or what? Um, Yes. Yeah, although I have to say, I think the uh, the prob- problem for any physical venue these days is that television is so good, and you, you're just mm, yeah, you, you're watching the faces as they line up for a corner kick, and you're watching, and and the camera moves around, lingering on the most interesting things to see. It's it's really hard to mm. to match that. You can't beat though that magnetic energy in the crowd. And if you are going, FYI, show your ticket on public transport. You get in for free. It's free public transport. And if you uh, can't make it to the game, you can watch the games either on Sky or free on Stuff, um, particularly the New Zealand games. So doing your bit in whatever way that you can contributes to this wave that we're currently riding yeah. around the support of women and girls. So keep doing your bit, Aotearoa. I love it. <laughs> oh, I love your support. I love your enthusiasm. So <laughs> very, very cool indeed. And uh, yeah, long may uh, the the vibe continue. It's four thirty. Oh, by the way, can I just say there's been <laughs> uh, just run off my feet with uh, what you think about the comment. Sick in the head. Where do you think? Look, it's fine to say that uh, it's a euphemism or yeah, the, the the idea of. Um, uh, how do you describe things, actually? So keep that coming. 2101. And uh, the song whisperer today, you guess the lyrics, we play the song. Here's the lyrics. It's quite tough, it's quite tough today. Jesus freaks out in the street handing tickets out for God.